um, is a city that is renowned for many, many things, isn't it? London's a city renowned for many things. Uh, London is famous for its weather. It is famous for its culture. More recently, I suppose, uh, London is also famous for its food. Uh, But a reputation, I suppose, that's less welcome is London's name for being a lonely city to inhabit. A lonely, lonely city. Uh, A recent survey uh, conducted in London named this place, ready for the title, it named it the capital city of loneliness. The capital city of loneliness. Stating that the population in London struggles with isolation more than uh, many other places on this earth. And the uh, reality, I suppose, that you and I have to face up to is that it's not just the isolated that are lonely in London. you see what I mean by that? Maybe not. Well, take... The husband who gets that phone call from his wife, she's telling him that she will be working late again tonight. Loneliness. Or take the wife whose husband has become so enraptured by the sort of materialism that London offers that they are clearly, as a couple, drifting apart. Loneliness. You see it? Uh, Whether we are isolated or whether we are in a relationship or part of a family, what's true? London life can be a very, very, very lonely life. Well, this evening, uh, the hope, God willing, is to cover most of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Perhaps uh, looking... uh, in particular, verse 4 onwards of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And although there are, as you can see, and you notice in the reading, there's, a, there's quite a few sections in Ecclesiastes 4, and it's a larger portion of the, the book than, the, than we would normally uh, take. Although there's quite a few sections, I would suggest that they are tied together by a common thread, a common theme, and it is the theme tonight of isolation. That's the theme, I think, of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So I know some of you have already done this, but if you haven't, I would invite you to please have your Bibles open at Ecclesiastes 4 on page 670. And tonight we'll, we'll look at three, we'll try and draw three things out of Ecclesiastes 4. Three things we see here. We see a, a source of isolation in this portion of scripture. We also see a solution to isolation. And then we see a surprise about isolation as well. A source, solution, surprise. So let's look at the first of those, uh, a source of isolation. Um, If you can think back to school, did you you have in, in your schooling, did you have a careers advisor? Some of you may have had a careers advisor at school. I had a careers advisor at school. And let me tell you that he was useless, uh, this careers advisor. I I remember him doing very, very little. The only thing that I remember this man doing was on one occasion getting a class together. And we had to sit in front of computers. We had to type in our likes and dislikes into the computer and the computer was supposed to tell us our ideal job, the job that would be most suitable for us. 
And can I tell you, it was absolutely ridiculous, some of the suggestions. So the class were told, oh, you should pursue being a pop star, or you should pursue uh, becoming, I don't know, a Hollywood designer or something along those lines. Now, hopefully you and I know that that's not really what children need, is it? And what do kids need at that sort of stage? They need someone to prepare them for what it's actually like out there, don't they? They need kids to prepare them, to somebody tell children, young people, the hard truths about what work is really like. Isn't that right? Not what children need. Well, do you see what the careers advisor failed to do? That is what Solomon does in, in, in this, in, certainly in this portion of Scripture from verse 4 onwards here. That what he does is almost like Solomon takes you and I aside and he tells us some real lessons about how and why we work. And I am not kidding you when I say that they're hard lessons, okay? So let's look at what he says. You'll see the first in verse 4. Look with me. And it is a lesson about envy. See what he says? It's all labor and all achievement. So what he's saying is we work. And what does he say the motivation is for work? Where does it come from? It springs from, aren't those difficult words? Motivation for work springs from man's envy of his neighbor. Now, uh, let me slow it down just for a moment. Do you see what, do you see what he's saying? He's saying so often, Our motivation for work, man's motivation comes, why are we working? What's that about? We work to get money so that we can buy things that other people have. And maybe if we sort of think about our own hearts, we think, okay, that maybe rings true. It certainly rings true for London, doesn't it? If you think about the people you know and the people you work with, what's it all about for these people? You know, the people you work with, what's that about? It's, it's about earning as much cash so that they can go out and buy a house like that other person has. Or to, to buy a car like that other person has. Do you see how this rings true? What's man's motivation for work? So often it's jealousy. So often it's envy, isn't it? That was a hard lesson. It doesn't get any easier Because Solomon goes on to teach us a hard lesson about laziness at work. Uh, um, As an aside, do you see why he goes from one to the other? Do you see the objection? Somebody might say, okay, Solomon, if it's wrong for me to throw myself into work so that I can buy stuff that other people have, I'm not going to throw myself into work. I'm just going to be lazy. You're saying it's wrong to, to really throw myself and work hard out of envy. Then I'll just not work hard. I'll fold my arms and I'll sit back and okay, I'll go to work, but I'm not going to put my heart and soul into work. You see the objection. And how does Solomon answer it in verse 5? The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Now, let me tell you. Let me tell you what that is in the, the, the original language. Listen to this. Solomon says there that the lazy person, the lazy man, he eats his own flesh. It's disgusting. 
You know, well, I mean, what, what an image. That's the image that God gives us here. The lazy man eats his own flesh, but do you see how it's true? There is, isn't there, something dehumanizing about sloth? Isn't there? Like the very fact that you and I are made by God to work, to work. That if we were to sit on the couch night in, night out, night in, night out, not engaging, not working, what does it do to us? Do you see what it does? It, it, it almost erodes something of what it actually means for you to be human. So you've got a lesson about envy. You've got a lesson about laziness. What else do we have? We've got a lesson about greed. Greed. Now, most of us, all of us know what a case study is, don't we? You know, if you're a science student, if you're a student at all, you'll know what a case study is, don't you? We know what a case study is. Instead, when we're trying to learn about something, instead of looking at stuff very generally, what does a case study involve? It involves taking an example, looking at a case study, an example of this to learn a particular lesson or learn something from it. A case study. I'm suggesting that Solomon gives you and me tonight a case study in what he's saying about work. Because in verse 8, he says this. He's been speaking really quite generally about things, about work and, and us and our attitude. And then he's suddenly really specific. And he says, there was a man. So you, you've got a case study in front of you. What, what, what does it teach us? Let's look at it. If you look at halfway through verse 8, what do we learn about this case study, this example? We get it halfway through verse 8. No end to, there was no end to his what? No end to his toil, yet, what else do we get to know about this man? His eyes were not content with his wealth. So, so you got the case study in front of you, in the lab, if you like. What do we learn? What do we know about this guy? He's a materialistic man. So the example that we're beginning is this man who's thrown everything, time, everything, all his energy into work. He's trying to accumulate wealth. You get the picture? This is a case study. Now, what is the problem with this man? Look at the beginning of the verse. I think it is desperately sad, this element of scripture here. Genuinely, it is. Look at the problem. This man was all alone like he's without he's without family he's without friendship he's lonely so do you see maybe what's happened here this man has become so obsessed with material things that he's given no time at all to anything else he has earned all of this money but at what cost do you see him the case study at the end of his life because of this attitude, he is without relationships, he's without family, he's without a spouse, he is without, entirely without love. Are you with me? It's sad, isn't it? Now I think we could, eh, tonight we could easily apply this to London. <laughs> like We all know people in this city who treat London as a means to an end. Do you see? They come into London and they throw all of their time and energy into work. And it's all about making money. And they've got a grand plan that one day they'll leave London and then they'll begin living. We know people like this man, this case study. And we could apply it to them 
But do you know what we have to do? We have to apply it to ourselves tonight. I need to ask you this. See the situation of this man. Does it sound, does it sound, his motivation, does it sound like you tonight? I mean, does it in any way ring true? Like what is, if you strip it all down and if you're honest with yourself this evening, what is the focus of your life just now? If you're honest, are you fixed on establishing yourself materially? You see what I mean? Like it's so much of your attention, so much of your focus. It's all on work. It's earning money so you can get a deposit for the house. Or is it you focus in all your time and energy so you can get money to make your house look a bit better or to, to get the car that you've, you've always wanted? Is it, is it, is it, is it that? Now, maybe you would say to me, but those things aren't necessarily wrong. They're not wrong. But do you see, if that becomes the center point of our life, if that becomes what our lives are about, do you see the danger here? Like the case study, like this man, our lives can just pass us by really rather quickly, let me tell you. Before long, what happens? We end up like him. We end up like this man. We end up elderly and... Alone. Or, or maybe it's not that. Maybe you're on the other side of the fence, are you? Maybe you're sitting there and, and God has greatly blessed you. And you've got, you're saying to me, this is not me. I'm not the case study. I've got a spouse. I've got a family and I've got a, I've got a great group of friends. This is not me. I, don't you see? Same thing's true. Same warning is there for you. If you and I, if we become workaholics, if we become utterly materialistic, what can happen? We can lose all of these people. Do you see it? We can end up like this man. We can end up wealthy. Who cares? Because we can end up wealthy and alone. So we see here a source of isolation, a source of isolation. But thankfully, we see more than that here. We also see a solution to isolation. Okay, perhaps if you're following the reading, following this portion of scripture, perhaps you see uh, Solomon's kind of train of thought, do you? So you can imagine him, uh, he's thinking about this man, this, this, this older man who's lonely because of his materialism, beginning to think about that. And then his mind goes to something better, something better by far. And what Solomon does is give us a a biblical maxim, a a, a common, uh, well-known biblical principle. So you'll see it with me in verse 9. Just look at the (laughs) the beginning phrase of verse 9. You'll be familiar with it, I'm sure. Do you see it? Two are better than one. Two are better than one. So you get the the general idea, don't you? The the fact that isolation is the weaker sister of companionship. Two is better than one. Okay. Now, I know that there's quite a few uh, in London City Presbyterian Church who uh, like to, to get out of the city now and again and to go for a walk in the hills. That you like to shake the dust of your feet, basically, and uh, leave the hustle and bustle of London behind 
and to get out on a train, get out of London into the wide open spaces and go for a wander uh, in the hills. Okay? Now, you see that idea of the wilds, getting out into the, the wide, wild open spaces like that. That, I think, is the image that you have to have to, to interpret Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Because what Solomon does here with, for you and for me is he confronts us with some advantages and the benefits of companionship. He's talked about loneliness, isolation. Now he tells us some of the real advantages, the benefits of being with other people. Now here's the thing. He ties them all to the idea of wilderness, the wilds. What do I mean? What are the, what are the benefits of of us being together. Well, have a look at verse 10. Have a look. In verse 10, he uses, you know, the idea of the animal traps they had in the ancient world. You know, in the wilderness, they would have a camouflaged pit to try and capture beasts and so forth. Well, he uses that now. And what's the benefit? Look what he says. If one falls down into those things, what happens? His friend can hurt. I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? It's an obvious benefit of partnership. Okay, look at the next one in verse 11. And just think about what could happen on a, a cold night out in the wilderness, okay? Think even, if you know your Bibles, think about David and the Shunammite woman. Do you know that story? David and the Shunammite. Or think about Elisha and the child. What could happen out in the wilderness? Look what he says. If two lie down together, they're going to keep each other warm. All right, another blessing of being with, with someone. And then there's the last one in verse 12. Do you see it? Think about it. If two people, what was the obvious danger out in the wilderness in the ancient world? If two people are attacked, if they're set upon, there's two of them. Though one might be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Look, do you, do you see the overarching principle that he's confronting us with? He's talked about loneliness. He's talked about isolation. He's now saying that there are a host and a plethora of beautiful advantages to company, to fellowship, and togetherness. Okay? That's the basic principle that he's putting forward. Can I ask you, where have you heard it before? Two is better than one. Where have you heard it before? Or what's the other one? A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Where have you heard it before? I know some of you have heard it before. Have you not heard it at weddings? Is this idea two are better than one? Or, you know, maybe the minister will try and get Jesus involved in that and say, oh, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Have you heard it? It's a go-to text for ministers at weddings, isn't it? Two better than one. Now, Here's my, here's my wee bit of a problem I've got with that. It's not wrong, is it? You know, God says it's not good for man to be alone. Two are better than one. That's fine. But it's not really what the text is about, is it? It's not about marriage explicitly. Neither is this cord of three strands really anything to do with the Trinity. As much as we would love to read that into it, you see that actually what Solomon is doing is giving you a very wide principle. Like this idea about companionship, two better than one. We can't just narrow it into marriage as easy as, we, as much as we want to do that. It's really wide. 
And it's, it's, it's a lovely general principle. So, let me ask you this question. And it's a delic- delicate, delicate question. See the idea of the theme tonight. Is it real for you? You know, I, I ask you, are you lonely? Are you? And I don't I mean, just pose that to those who are isolated and living by themselves in London. Generally, to everyone, are you lonely? Whether that be because you are in, or you can be in a relationship, you can be in a, in a family setting, are you lonely? Well, if so, would you take this general principle, two are better than one, this one that God is confronting you with tonight, and would you apply that even to the life of the church? You see what I mean? I'll, t- I'll tell you this as the pastor of the congregation here. I've seen the same thing uh, so often in the last four years. And it is lonely people coming into London. And they're very lonely. And they will come to church and they will refuse to engage fully with the life of the congregation. They're lonely, like desperately lonely people in a really intimidating sick. And yet, for whatever reason, you know, maybe it's fear, you know? Maybe it's trepidation. Maybe it's because loneliness seems to, to rob us of self-confidence a lot of the time, doesn't it? For whatever reason, they do not engage fully with the life of the church. And I'm, I'm asking you, if that's you tonight, if you are lonely, don't you see what God has done? And he's granted you the church. He's, he's, he's taken you in Christ to the church, but he's also given you a congregation. Now, now you, you may be saying to me, but practically, how does that work? How do I fully engage with the life of the church? I'll give you one of 20 examples I could give you. And the house group Bible studies of this church. Now, think about what Solomon is saying to you. Two are better than one. Fellowship is, is to be grasped. And what happens this week? Various locations, various times in this city your brothers and sisters gather together, open God's word, and what is there for you? There is fellowship. And I know it's, in, it's intimidating. Like I know it's, it's very hard sometimes to go to a person's house for the first time and you don't know anybody there. You don't know what they're going to be like. You don't really know what you're in for at all. But do you see? I mean, do you see the, the rewards of this? Two are better than one. Two are better than one. But maybe you're sitting there thinking, none of this applies to me. Maybe you're sitting thinking, I'm not lonely. <laughs> I'm not. You know, Andy, I've, I've got a family or I've got a spouse or I've got a close group of friends and and yeah, I, I accept there might be lonely people. I'm not one of them. And to be honest, Andy, I don't want to spend more time with the people at church. I want to spend less time with the people at church. 
If that's you, don't you see your responsibility? If that's you, it's you and me that are the ones then to reach out to those who are in desperate isolation. You see that? Then it's you and I that have to pursue these people. We've got to be the ones who make ourselves available to those who are crying out for company. Because how do we start this sermon? London. So the place that God has put you and I, London, is the capital city of loneliness. And I am telling you, we have an amazing opportunity to offer, to offer meaningful, Christ-centered, gospel-centered community. We've got an amazing opportunity to, to offer that to lonely people. So we've got a, a source of isolation. We've got a solution in the church to isolation. The third and the last thing is a surprise about isolation. Although they would never admit to it, and may well kill me if they ever listened to the sermon, my parents, uh, when I was a child, were huge fans of the American rock group, uh, the Eagles. We're going back a bit. Maybe you don't know who the Eagles are. And I, I maybe do my dad a disservice. Maybe it was my mother who was the fan of the Eagles. But I remember driving around in the car, being driven around. The, the Eagles would be playing in the background. And uh, I always sort of struggled with the, struggled to understand the Eagles' lyrics, the lyrics to the songs. Which, looking back on it, that's probably a good thing that as a child I didn't know what they were singing about. Um, but there's one particular verse, one particular line, I think it was in one of my mum's favourite songs, that I could never get my head around. It was something like this. I won't sing it for you. Uh, I promise, but uh, it was, uh, Johnny come lately, uh, a new kid in town. And as a child, I was thinking, what is this? You know, what What on earth does that mean? He's singing about a, a child, but what is a Johnny come lately? Well, you know what Johnny Come Lately is, don't you? Somebody who has accepted, maybe, usually, I think. Somebody who is welcomed. Why? Because they're the new person uh, on the scene. They're welcomed because they are Johnny Come Lately. Okay? Now, see that image, that idea of a Johnny Come Lately. That's what Solomon talks about in the last section of chapter 4. Now, if you look at it with me, look at verse 13. It's, it's, it's a, it, believe me, it's an unusual little section of Scripture there because it seems as though Solomon is speaking about a, a historical situation, but nobody can try and really pin down what the historical situation is. So what does he, what does he talk about? He talks about a pauper on one hand and a king. You see what happens? The the poor person is the Johnny-come-lately. He arrives on the scene, and he rises up to power. And do you see what he does? He succeeds the king. The king, he's old hat, he's passé. We want the Johnny-come-lately. So the poor person comes up, rises to power. Okay, there's, there we go. What happens? you see what happens? Look at the kicker, verse 16. Eventually, this Johnny-come-lately, this youth... He's risen to power, but he eventually too becomes yesterday's news. Do you see it? 
Another guy comes along on the scene. A new Johnny-come-lately emerges. And what does he do? He pushes our formerly poor guy to the side. And despite the fact that this guy has risen up to prominence now, the end of this, what do we see? Despite all of that success, our Johnny-come-lately, he's miserable, he's hurt, and he's alone. You see the message? Listen to the message. Success, no matter how great, it is never, ever going to destroy that monster of isolation. It, It won't. Like, no matter how many promotions you get at work, and no matter how much you advance in your field, and no matter how much wealth you and I accumulate, it's never, ever going to do this. It's never going to vaccinate us against this disease that we're dealing with tonight. It'll never, ever vaccinate and treat us against loneliness. It won't. But I don't want to leave it there. I want to leave it like this. I want to ask that question again. Are you lonely? If you're lonely, I leave you with the answer to your loneliness. Friend, you know what the answer to your loneliness is, do you? The answer is Jesus. If you're a Christian and you're lonely, don't you see that? What has he, what has he said to you? He said that he will never ever leave you or forsake you. So if you're a Christian and you're lonely, then what do you need to do tonight? Surely you need to seek the Lord Jesus Christ anew this evening. You need to, either tonight after the service or when you go home, you genuinely need to get on your knees and you need to beg God for a sense of his closeness and a sense of his nearness, a sense that you will know for sure that you are not the Holy Spirit of God alone. But let me say this, and I end here, I end with this, I promise you this. If you're not a Christian in here tonight, and you are lonely, can I say this, that no one who has ever lived on this earth knows more about that and what it is like than the Lord Jesus Christ. No one knows more about what it means to be lonely than Jesus. You see why I say that, do you? What did he do? He left the perfect fellowship and community of heaven above, and and he comes to earth. And what does he do on earth? To win salvation for, for, for people like you and me. What does he do? Think about it. What does he do? He actually voluntarily experiences utter devastating loneliness. Isn't that what he did in the gospel? Loneliness. Embraced it. Think about it. He didn't, he didn't just experience the shunning of the Jewish leadership. And he didn't uh, just experience the isolation of all those people taunting him and rejecting him. And he didn't just experience that desertion of all the disciples that he's loved for years and cared for them. And he gets arrested and they all flee. Can you imagine how lonely that would be? It's 
not just that. What else happened? In his death, what happened? He experienced the total abandonment and the total forsakenness of his very own father. Do you see it? Do you see that he experienced the loneliness of greater depth than you and I will ever, ever, ever experience? And he did it for us. And so because of that, friends, I I can say this with, with, with confidence, that tonight the Lord Jesus can offer you something in your loneliness that is absolutely beautiful. It is priceless. The Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel, he can offer you fellowship. And it's fellowship with almighty God. Isn't that something? Isn't it? Do you see what it is? We've gone through all of this, but do you see where we end up? What is Christ Jesus? He is the answer to the loneliness of London. Let's pray.